sono i pacchi bomba contro i rappresentanti Okay, let's see a movie. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? This is Death by DVD, and you're listening to Hank, the world's greatest. I will be your host for this episode that would best be accompanied by Rolling Rock and Cocaine. I guess depending on where you live and the legality of cocaine. So, everyone that doesn't live in Oregon, it would best be accompanied by Rolling Rock. Why? Why such a request? Because we're staying in Pittsburgh. Last week, our episode was all about a Pittsburgh filmmaker and a movie that pretty much centered around and a big part of it was taking place in Pittsburgh. I like the place, so we're going to stay there. Why not? I got a little-known movie from 1980. And I say little-known, but uh, in the last 10 years or so, this movie has, I wouldn't call it a resurgence, but certainly this movie has become a bit more visible in the last 10 years than ever before. It was just released in theaters, and uh, that was about it. I don't think you were able to, outside of Boots, uh, find this film for quite some time. And serendipitously enough, March happens to be the birth month of a certain legend in horror circles especially Pittsburgh horror circles, a man named Joe Pilato. I made a very groovy, I can't, <laughs> I just said groovy. Made this really neat movie uh, called Effects that was made like in the early 80s, and it was so ahead of its time. Born March 16th, 1949, unfortunately Joe Pilato is no longer with us. He passed away March 24th, 2019. Isn't that weird? You ever notice that? People die around their birthdays, like the month before, the month after, or just that month. Is it just me? I mean, that's a thing, right? I don't know. Probably just made half the audience paranoid for no reason. But this film that we're going to discuss tonight, it stars Joe Pilato. We're talking about effects, written and directed by Dusty Nelson, based on a novel by Bill Mooney called Duped and Snuff. It went by two titles. Before we even get to the movie, it needs to be said and understood, written in stone, this is one of those full disclosure sort of things. I'm going to be discussing the entirety of the film, the beginning, the middle, and the end. There will be abundant spoilers. In fact, the entire thing is going to be one big, massive spoiler. So if you have not seen this film and you would like to keep it that way, please don't listen to this episode. And the way I worded that means, like, you wouldn't want to see it in general. If that's the case, we'll just on you. I mean, that's stupid because... I like the movie. I guess I'm giving away the review. There's no point in listening to the rest of the episode now. He likes the movie. Brr. That's it. I, isn't that what you're supposed to save till the end? You know, your your final, do I like it? Do I don't? Yeah, I like the movie. God damn it. There we go. It stars Joe Pilato. Do you think I'd be like, it's a big piece of shit. Happy birthday. <laughs> I wouldn't have made all the effort to talk about his birthday and celebrating Joe Pilato. <laughs> but yeah, no, big surprise here. I like the movie. Spoilers, full disclosure, I'm not going to say it as many times as I did last week. That's a more recent movie, and I really didn't want to pop the bubble. This film came out in 1980, so how much spoiling for a 40-year-old movie is there? A lot, actually. You'd be surprised how often uh, you don't get feedback. I liked that episode. That was informative. Interesting. You just kind of get, oh, well, thanks for fucking spoiling it. The world we live in, right? So this is a Pittsburgh movie. What does that mean? Well... 
almost everyone involved is from Pittsburgh. It's filmed in Pittsburgh. It was produced in Pittsburgh. It was majorly released in Pittsburgh. The cast and crew of this movie you will certainly recognize if you're a fan of George A. Romero. Or just to say the name of the city again, Pittsburgh Films, or even Pittsburgh Theater. Almost everyone involved in this movie at some capacity at some point in their life went on to work or had previously worked with George. They were part of his crew. You'll sometimes hear George discuss, uh, like, the family years, his favorite years of filmmaking, pretty much the Knight Rider, that era, the 1970s where he got to shoot and work with his best friends consistently, that everyone in his crew was almost like a family to him. And when he, you know, went commercial and started working for studios, he wasn't able to do that anymore. And it really, you can even see his work was affected by it. To me, it definitely went downhill that the era of Martin and Knight Rider was, was significant. Now, of course, Day of the Dead was part of that. And that's, if you've listened to the show regularly, you'll know one of my all-time favorite films. I, I, I love it with all my heart. I think it's one of the best Romero pictures. I, I like it more than Dawn of the Dead. I'm not going to say it's better than Dawn of the Dead, but I like it more than Dawn of the Dead. And this was really done in that, that same kind of respect. It was a lot of people that were close to one another, a lot of people that had a lot of passion, and really uh, a lot of people that saw Martin and and worked on Martin and were involved with, with Romero for that and wanted to do something similar to it. You can say that Effects is 100% inspired by Romero's work specifically Martin, that all of these guys really were deeply inspired by it. All right, so let's just cut the bullshit and jump right in. You guys know what type of ride you're on here for. We're going to talk about the movie, the middle, beginning, and end. Let's rock and roll. The first scene of this movie is actually one of my favorites in the whole film. We get to see this TV station, and on a monitor, a movie title card is being shown, and it reads, Duped. The Snuff Movie, directed and produced by Lacey Bickle. Now, this initially means nothing to us, but by the end of the film, it's, it's, it's really wonderful, and it's, it's just so coy, and this movie has a lot of layers, and this introduction, this very first layer, at the payoff, when you, when you get to that big money at the end of the movie, I, I think this is one of the most successful things, because the movie begins and it ends in the exact same manner. And I love it. I love that. This is a movie about deception. And it begins instantly, the deception. I mean, obviously, the movie begins instantly when you press play. But you just don't know it. I mean, you know that the movie has begun because you press play. You don't know about the deception. But that itself is another theme in the movie. What is real and what isn't? But I'll get to that in a little while. So right after this TV station shot, you've got immediate nudity. It's always a great way to get the audience's attention, get them into the movie. Nudity! It's also a fantastic way to introduce a character. People tend to be uncomfortable when it's a male character, but... That is such a great way to show somebody, you know, just cock and balls, swinging. Hey, it's Tim, the character. But that's not what we're dealing with here. It is some female nudity. In fact, it's a shower scene. The movie begins, I mean, we've got this TV station scene. Then it goes immediately into a woman taking a shower. And then she smokes a joint. So nudity and drug use? Excellent. Excellent. But something very strange is going on. Something real weird is happening to this doobie smoking lady. She seems to be hallucinating. Her husband knocks on the door and is talking to him, but she also sees him in the mirror menacingly preparing to attack her with a straight razor. We go from something that looks very sterile, almost like reminiscent of Videodrome, which hadn't even come out at the same time, but the, you know, I'm trying to give you an idea of what this looks like here, all those TV monitors, you know, that sort of thing. And then we move into this kind of 
made-for-TV feeling sequence, you know, kind of like Tales from the Dark Side. Wonder who did that. But we learned that this is just another deception. So the movie began with a deception, although you don't know it because you're being decepted, and then you get this old switcheroo. We're actually watching a movie being filmed. There's a movie going on within the movie. Someone yells, cut, and we are introduced to the majority of our characters in this sequence, the, the ones in the actual movie we're watching. We've got John Harrison as Lacey Bickle. Who's John Harrison? Well, you may know him if you're a Dune fan. He did the miniseries in the year 2000. But he was a writer and director for Tales from the Dark Side. I believe he's working on the new Creepshow series, but this dude's old school when it comes to Ramiro. He did the soundtrack for Day of the Dead. I would consider him a legend. He plays the director of the movie that we are watching. And then we have Joe Pilato. Joe's playing a character named Dom. We've got Deborah Gordon as Rita. Bernard McKenna as Barney. Barney and Rita are actors in the movie, and they're, they're married. Their characters are married in the movie that we're watching. Lacey's directing. I think I already said that. And Dom, Joe Pilato, he's shooting the film, and he's the effects guy. They're shooting out in a cabin, sort of farmhouse type thing. A really lovely place in the, the country area outside of Pittsburgh. Susan Chappick is introduced as well, playing a character named Celeste. Immediately, we can see that we have some unique characters on deck. Pilato's Dom just doesn't really know anybody. He's, he's an odd man out. He's new. It seems you, you kind of get this feeling immediately that everyone is really comfortable with each other, and Dom isn't necessarily uncomfortable. He's just a new guy. He's a hired gun. Really, from the first scene to the last, everything is some form of deception one way or another. You can't trust anyone or anything that's happening in this movie. We see here that Lacey has hidden cameras installed in the house. For what reasons? Movie making is, is really all that we know at this point, but there's something creepy about it. There's something not right about it. We're shown that. We're allowed to feel that. And this is a movie that really does come down to tone and feelings because it, it from that very first scene onward, everything is deception. And you don't know as it progresses. And it, it really unfolds. It's sort of like a piece of origami that you're taking apart from like the very tip. Like let's say it's an origami unicorn and you're just starting at the horn and you slowly have to kind of peel it and take it apart and you start getting exposed to this inner core. And the further you're exposed to the inner core, the, the, the weirder it gets because you just don't know who to trust. By the time you get to the middle of this movie, where we'll get soon, you just don't know anyone or what to trust. Even if what you're seeing, you're, you're even at a point going, this is just bullshit. And the, the deeper you get into things, the more clever the editing comes into play. And it just pays off, to me, in my personal and humble opinion, beautifully at the end of this. So all we can assume is these hidden cameras have something to do with the movie being shot. We know that Lacey and his crew are making a horror picture, and it's a violent one. If you're a fan of Dawn of the Dead, you'll relish in the fact that all the blood is that hyper-red, almost orange-tinged stage blood. And you'll also be... Excited to know that Tom Savini does almost all the special effects, if not all of them. Here we get something we need to take note of. This crazy flute noise will play throughout the movie, and every time that this happens, it means somebody is being watched. We've been allowed to see one hidden camera that we know Lacey has. Celeste comes up to it and begins performing a little bit of Shakespeare, letting us know that maybe the cameras aren't so hidden after all. Some people are in on this. A little flute noise plays, and that establishes for the rest of the movie. Whenever that plays, you're watching something from somebody else's perspective that is being filmed. And then it's time for us to hit Funky Town. Dom meets up with Celeste at a local bar, and they strike up a friendship. Well, they strike up a conversation that leads to a friendship. And he's just curious as to why she's a gaffer on this project and not acting. But before we get to learn any more information, 
were quickly interrupted by the sleaze himself, good old Tom Savini, and he is wearing the most ridiculous hat. It's an umbrella. It's an umbrella hat. They were really popular in the 1980s, but every time you see one, they're just, I don't know. There's like two types of people that wear umbrella hats. One of them, I'm sure, has extreme anxiety and is very, very concerned about the rain, and the other one is the guy that Tom Savini is playing in this movie, which is a giant asshole. I kind of wonder how much acting Tom is really doing here. And I mean that in, in good jest, especially if you've seen this movie, the, the character Tom Savini is playing, I think, is, is very much a lot of Tom Savini. He's, very, he's a smart mouth, he's a wise ass, and a little bit of a sleaze. Teensy, tiny, a little bit of a sleaze. And I mean that in the greatest regard. Tom Savini, that was his nickname in the 1970s, uh, from Romero and Company. Christine Forrest, George Romero's former wife, I actually believe, gave him the nickname around the time that they were filming Knight Riders, so... Don't get mad at me for shit-talking Tom Savini. I mean it in the best absolute possible way. It's fucking Tom Savini. The guy could kick my ass in his 70s with just his pinky. I know what I'm doing here. I'm joking. It's a joke. Fucking relax. The guy said he was doing a Pittsburgh show and just shit-talk Tom Savini. It's a joke. Come on. This usually is uh, an as-always sort of thing, but Tom Savini's screen presence is just incredible. When he manages to be on screen... It, it just takes it over. I mean, from Dust Till Dawn, Sex Machine. Best character in the whole movie. The guy's got a dick gun. It doesn't... It, who, who gives a shit what his dialogue is? He has a dick gun. It's amazing. It's Tom Savini. He steals this scene. He, they, it, it goes all sour, though. They end up getting into a fight. He moons Celeste and Dom, and he's wearing this pair of underwear that just has the word fuck written on it in big red letters. Celeste kicks him in the butt, and a fight breaks up. Joe Pilato, Dom gets hit in the face. Everybody runs. It's a bit of a filler scene. What you well, it's what you would assume actually to be a bit of a filler scene, but uh, this is something with the the whole movie, all of effects. Everything you're shown is very meticulous. Everything you're shown has an absolute reason. And the very very first time you watch this movie, a lot of it is just like, eh, this could have been polished a little bit better. Some of this writing, like, what's what's this for? They just go to a bar, and Tom Savini's wearing the stupid hat, and then a fight breaks out, and now we're back to. Just the, what we'd already been introduced to. We're just back to these people shooting a movie. There's nothing special about this. But each thing is intricately layered, and it's the precision of the writing and the editing, both of these things going hand-in-hand hand together, that gives this movie just the swiftness and, and to me, I think, one of the best twists that somebody like M. Night Shyamalan has been unable to do their entire fucking career because when this movie's twist hits you, there's so much stuff that you could have considered as lethargic writing or just... These guys don't know what they're doing. This is a bunch of young people, and they're out there, and they're doing an independent horror thing. All of these things really do wrap up into such a, a perfectly tightly tied rope. I mean, just like the braiding and the precision of how it is to make a, a piece of rope and all of these pieces coming together to make one stronger, bigger product. That's what I mean. The next scene helps define the point of the movie. Lacey is going over a gore effect with Celeste and Dom, and it's, it's just not violent enough for him, which perturbs Dom and Celeste because, to them, what he wants is cartoonish. You know, he wants, like, a Fulci level of violence. And that's not real. That's not how it really happens. And, and what Lacey says is, who cares? Again, we keep going back to the same point of this movie. What's real, what isn't, and if you don't know the difference, does it really matter? If you can't tell it's fake... Who will know it's not real? I mean, if, if it looks real to you, how are you going to know any other way? And would you know? I mean, we're, we're asking a lot of questions here. 
would you know if somebody was actually being killed? If you didn't know, you would just be watching it as regular. You would just take it as a horror movie. Like in The Crow, you can look up and find that scene where Brandon Lee gets shot, but you don't actually see him being shot. That wasn't put into the film. What if it was? Would you have known if no one told you? And that's probably the most significant thing when it comes to this movie. What's real and what isn't? It's not about the truth. It's about what you can make people believe. As characters develop, we get a real feel to everyone. Lacey is a dick. Lacey has a lot of money, and he is an asshole. He doesn't seem to even really have emotion. He wants to get this finished, so that's not true. He's very passionate about this project, but increasingly cold to everyone else. Celeste comes off very high-strung. We know that she knows more than what we've been presented, and something's got to be getting to her. She's, she's just unhappy to almost be involved with anyone but Dom, and Dom's pretty much just a dude. He's a professional cameraman and an effects artist, so he's here to do a job. He's here under the idea that he's going to get paid to do this job and to do this movie and then move on to the next project, which for, for, for many of us out there, it's just a matter of work and getting to the next project, and that's how this character takes it, which there's no fault in. So he's not so much an outsider, he's a professional, and assuming all these other peoples are equally professional, that's why he's so kind of wilded out that Celeste is not acting that she's doing gaffer work where it's very clear that she's she's good at performance. But hey, maybe she is acting. We will find out. Dun, 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 dun. Wait a second. Isn't that the farmer's jingle? Yeah. <sighs> Lines are blurred as we slip back into the movie being shot within the movie that we're watching. Almost as if we're watching two films. And it really does work to an advantage of the movie because you're just constantly left in a state of confusion and you're wondering always... Is this reality? Or whose reality is this? Are we back into the movie? Or is this something that's being filmed that we don't know is being filmed? Who shows up? It's Tom Savini. We learn his name is Nikki, and that somehow he knows Lacey and Barney. More deception. Imagine that. I said the movie was about deception, and there's more deception. Great, it works well, huh? My word of the day calendar is finally paying off. Up until last week, I thought that word was one of the Transformers' names. So who is this guy? Who is Nikki? Just like the very first scene, there is a lot going on, and it just seems to be kind of loose dialogue. But at one point or another, it, it's going to hit you. This whole movie, the whole entire thing, they lay it out just like a line of coke, which is snorted copiously throughout this movie. The whole thing. All of it. They lay it out right here in this scene. Everything that's going to happen from this point on, you just have to listen to it, but it really doesn't make any sense. You're listening to people talk. You don't really have a firm grasp of absolutely... You don't really have a firm grasp of anything. But as we progress and as we go through these layers and kind of peel them back like an onion, you go back to scenes like this, and it's like, oh, man... They fucking told me. They told me. But right here at the sequence we're talking about, everyone is sitting around a table. Tom Savini shows up. Even clever detective skills won't help you. A lot of the movie's momentum comes from the editing. It's fast and it's smooth, but it's clever. And the film is put together cleverly, and that's really what pays off. It's things like this. It's things like that first scene. It's things like Celeste doing the little bit of Shakespeare in front of the mirror and saying you need to pan it. I don't remember verbatim what she says, but she lets you know 100% that there's a fucking camera there and she's aware of it. Back to the movie. Literally, though, because it, it jumps back to the movie that's progressing, that's being filmed by Lacey. But you can never tell. You really can never tell if it's the movie that they're showing you or the movie that we're watching. So 
this scene finally gets interrupted by Nikki and we get to know, okay, we're watching the movie again. We don't, you know, because everything is the exact same actor. So when we're watching the movie being shot, we've got Barney and we've got Rita and we don't know if we've just shot to something bizarre happening in the middle of the night. Especially because of the synopsis of this movie, almost everything you can read, we'll, we'll read from IMDb here. While a small film crew are shooting a low-budget horror movie in a house in the woods, the lines between reality and fiction start to blur, and the movie slowly turns into a snuff film. <laughs> Which makes it sound something like hardcore snuff by the Findlays, and it, for one, is, is far superior to snuff by the Findlays. Hardcore? Uh, that's debatable. Completely different movie, though. More people would be familiar with 8mm starring Nicolas Cage and Joaquin Phoenix, which essentially is just a bastardization and ripoff of hardcore Paul Schrader film. You listen to this show regularly, you'll know I fucking love Paul Schrader. So, it goes without saying, I thoroughly enjoy hardcore. Snuff is the subject matter of that, but that's such a much more dramatic piece. Snuff by the Findlays is one of the most ineffective movies of all time a brief funny story here i must mention that film regularly on on death by dvd and a couple weeks ago somebody messaged me and said i bought a copy of snuff because you talk about it on death by dvd that movie's a big piece of dog shit what's wrong with you so i i've been going back and trying to find at any point that i may or may not have said snuff was a good movie i don't i don't that doesn't sound like me it's not a good movie the uh, uh, there's nothing good about it, in fact. And that's a whole show for... In fact, I think it's a video nasty, and we'll eventually get to it. I could be wrong. Might be section two. I'm wrong all the time, though, so it doesn't fucking matter. We'll talk about snuff another day. I don't think this movie draws a heavy comparison to either or anything that I've mentioned. What I brought up 8mm, I brought up hardcore, and snuff. The subject matter, yes. Snuff is a point. I... I can see that it's all that's been caught by all the attention from critics and for the most part people that bring up this movie that's what they they mostly fixate on and i think it's much more an emotional thing about characters and the development of these people and uh, how easy it is to lie and deception and and just decepting everyone you're it, there's just so many different things that we can go into to fields of discussing when when it is the making of this movie when it is the creation or the theories of what this movie could be about but for all intents and purposes, we're discussing just effects. We're just going to discuss what happens in the movie, uh, what I think works, and obviously I'm interjecting regularly my thoughts and my feelings on the subject matter. So we're not going to get as analytical as uh, we sometimes do into the making and, and the, the reasonings behind all this and the psycho psychoanalytical concepts. And uh, That's a bit much for tonight. Because I think most of it's really relevant and in your face, especially if you can find this movie, if you can sit down and watch this movie. I don't know if it's out of print anymore. The American Genre Film Archive, AGFA, Vinegar Syndrome's sister label, they released it a few years ago. But I don't even know if that's available now. So Nikki pops up and absolutely ruins this scene that they're in the middle of shooting. Find out here that he has an actress with another character we've not been shown to on the screen named Lobo, who is dying to try out for him, wants to meet Lacey, wants to participate in the movie. Lacey tells him, you know, just just wait a few minutes, and Pilato lets him know, hey, we can we can finish this ourselves. Don't worry about it. They're shooting some backup and cutaway shots, and the movie ends for now with mystery and intrigue. Well, the movie they're filming inside of the movie we're watching. There's something to note here. Lacey asks Celeste to join him with Nikki as he leaves. 
but she declines to stay with Dom, where we eventually learn that Lacey has inherited all of his wealth from his parents who died in a plane accident and that Celeste has had a history with him. Dom asks a very important question here. He asks to Celeste, if Lacey has so much money, why is this almost a one-man crew shooting on 16mm? And you don't really think about that. You've not questioned it throughout the most of the movie, but we've we've seen how cold and calculated Lacey is, and it is established er early on that he is very, very wealthy. One guy just shooting and all of this effects, you're making this horror movie. What we're being presented, this guy's wealth, we've already been shown at the very first scene this weird kind of TV studio, but it's never come back to it. We have seen these hidden cameras. They're not just shooting with shit. There's money behind this. So this is a really provocative question that you take into consideration because you really haven't thought about it before with everything that you've seen in the movie. And something that's really unique about this entire experience is you're witnessing these people making a movie. So if you're really not familiar with how that's done or how it was done in the, in the 1970s and 1980s, what you get to see is, is pretty much like a behind-the-scenes thing. You are seeing Pilato's job, you're seeing what it's like to be a cameraman, and you've got a lot of cool stuff of like how you need to take film from the can and you put it into a bag so light doesn't hit it. All of these things that are ridiculously hard but are shown in the movie with like exquisite skill, all of these things that you need to understand is just a daily job to these people, that you're watching the people that make the magic that you sit down and you, you know, void with, that you lose reality with and makes your day better, that this is a day job to these people, just like the one you come home from and watch movies to avoid. Makes sense? Maybe? Dom is woken up by the sounds of boogieing. He creeps downstairs and he sees a bit of this actress trying out. It's a bit of a strip tease. She's dancing. Barney's taking Polaroids and Lacey's snorting coke. So much coke. So much sweet, sweet, sweet coke is done in this movie. It's one of the other themes, but unlike Scarface, I think there's a pretty strong possibility. This actually might be real blow. Honestly, I hope it's real blow at least. <laughs> I just do. I just want all of these people to be as gacked out as possible while they were filming this movie. And there's been so much drug use at this point. I mean, I, I brought up at the very beginning, you got nudity and then somebody smoking a big old doobie right at, at the introduction of this film. And it progressively is just snorting and snorting and snorting. When Savini's character Nikki first shows up to the house, it's within like two or three lines of dialogue that he mentions. You know, let's go skiing, guys. Let's get this done. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Cocaine is a hell of a but drug. it is all over this movie. And it's great. We, for the very, very first time since the introduction scene to this film, cut back to the massive TV studio. And we're shown engineers that are watching all of this on the monitors. Absolutely everything that's going down. It's like Big Brother 30 years before it came out. You know, the, the, the show, the reality show, Big Brother, not not the, the Orwellian thing. Never mind. Big Brother. So, so what the fuck? Something obviously much bigger is going on here, but what? I mean, clearly Lacey has a lot of money. This is a, a, a massive studio, and it's got these people sitting inside of it watching everything that we're being shown. So we were established that there's a hidden camera in the house, but there's much, much more than just a fucking hidden camera. We get some really pleasant nature shots here, because that's what this movie was missing. We needed some nature shots of Pittsburgh. It's actually a really, Pennsylvania itself is a really pretty state. And 
this scene shows it off. This movie was filmed for about $55,000 in about a period of a month, mostly shot on 16mm, and they did shoot in outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So you've got a lot of nice foliage here in uh, this sequence. You've got Dom taking Celeste to go fishing. He's teaching her how to fly fish, and uh, Pilato is just a pleasure to watch. He's so natural, and his performance is fun. He he genuinely is fun, and it is such a hard difference from what we've seen in Day of the Dead. He's so abrasive. He's so awful. His character is one of the most vile interpretations of evil you've ever seen. There's something so relatable. There's such an every guy sort of feeling about this. And just as I was making snarky fun about Tom Savini and him not really acting in this movie... I don't think Joe Pilato was doing a lot either. I think this is a, a lot of naturality. I think this is a lot of who he is, especially at this point in his life. I mean, Day of the Dead hadn't even happened at this point, so... I mean, he's technically in Dawn of the Dead, depending on which version you watch. He's one of the guys asking for cigarettes before they take off at the beginning of the movie, leaving the city and, and head out toward Monroeville. So not a lot. You know, he hadn't really been able to progress and hadn't had a lot of experience. And what you have with this character is somebody that's not necessarily sheepish, but they're, they're, very, they're very stiff. And it's not the performance, it's not Joe Pilato, it's the character. The character is stiff. He doesn't really fit in with the other people, he doesn't really party with them. He obviously has an interest in Celeste, and that's the one thing he's focusing on, which, you know, very beautiful woman, he has interest in her, so why not? Especially when you don't work for the company, you don't know them, hey, treat your shot. But all of this, again, this is one of those things that's like, why is this in the movie? They're just fly fishing. And throughout this, if you listen carefully and you take note, We'll switch over to a blue screen and we'll hear that flute music. They're being watched. We know, and it was established, that Celeste is aware that there are hidden cameras. She's got something else going on. It looks like everybody involved in this movie has a different script and they're not supposed to tell somebody. And that's that's very commonplace. Uh, directors like David Lynch are very well known for doing that, that they have very certain versions of certain scripts that are given to actors so they only do their specific part. So... It's not super uncommon, it's not like it's unfair or it's something really strange that Lacey is doing to everyone, but there really does seem to be a level of deviant voyeurism that is against everyone's trust here. There's something quite unnatural about what's going on. But all of these things end up coming together. I mean, look at something like Parasite. That movie came to you in such a weird, strange, layered format that when you saw the end of it, it almost ruins the movie because the effective nature of, of everything was held with the surprise. When it comes to effects, you see the surprise at the end of the movie and you get the twist and you understand what's going on completely and I think it makes the movie twice as more appreciable. Appreciatable? App uh, that, is that a word? Am I making up words again every goddamn week? You can appreciate the product, I think, a lot much more when you get to the end, and it's one of those things that you finish it, and you're like, well, I want to watch this again, because I, I, I gotta, I gotta re-see some of this stuff, and that is because it's clever, thoughtfully made, and well done. Well done on everyone's part. We'll get a little bit off subject here, but the film's editor and one of the producers was a guy named Pasquale Buba. And it's a name that you should recognize from Romero work. He was in Dawn of the Dead. He's one of the motorcycle raiders, but he was until his death in 2018. A prolific editor, an incredibly skilled editor, and this is one of the first depictions of, of how skilled he is. You want to talk about how good this guy was? Heat. Heat. Yeah, with Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, that one, Heat. He's the head editor. That was some of his 
finest work. Well, next to this, I think it's fantastic. He also did the editing for Monkey Shines for George A. Ramiro. He did the editing for the segment The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill and Creep Show. Knight Riders, arguably my favorite George Romero movie. I'm a little tricky, though. I'm a big fan of Martin, and I'm a big fan of Day of the Dead. So that's a, a, a three sort of thing, a trifecta of favorites. You'll most commonly hear him referred to as Pat. Pat Booba was a genius, an artist, a, an incredible human being. And at where we're at in the movie, I think this is really a testament even to more what I'm talking about, because I've mentioned this two or three times. The editing is exquisite, and it is. He, he, he cut two movies for Romero, so when I say it's reminiscent to his style, you can maybe understand what I mean here. But even movies, especially, not even movies, especially movies like Martin, that's some of the tightest precision when it comes to Romero's style as an editor, and it was exquisite. It, it gave you this, like, John Ford, Sam Peckinpah kind of feel of pacing. It, it was very, very Western-based, and this movie, I mean... Which is a very strange thing to say, especially if you're not familiar with, with Western pictures or Western TV shows in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. But the way Ramiro cut, and something like Night of the Living Dead is very significant in this conversation, it's cut very similar to how those Westerns would have been, as is effects from 1979-1980, because it's just so fast and you're given so much. And I mean this even more about like uh, Western television shows than really the movies itself, because you had to fit three-hour story in a 25-minute format with a bunch of cigarette commercials in between it, because it's 1950. Switch from hearts to Snow Fresh Filter. Cool. Cool Snow Fresh, cool taste, so clean, so refreshing, so cool. As cool and as clean. As a breath of fresh air. That's no fresh filter cool. Your mouth feels clean. Your throat refreshed. The finest leaf tobacco, mild, refreshing menthol, and the world's most thoroughly tested filter. That's no fresh filter cool. Why don't you switch from hots to the snow fresh coolness of cool? And as clean as a breath of fresh air, America's most refreshing cigarette, Snow Fresh Filter Smoke them if you got them, because it's time for another round of Keep David or David Keith. In 2001's Behind Enemy Lines, which ironically is about Owen Wilson and he was behind Enemy Lines, who plays Master Chief Tom? Is it David Keith? Oh, or is it Keith David? It's David Keith. Thanks for playing another heart-stopping, boner-popping round of David Keith or Keith David. Until next time, goodbye and good luck, and now back to Hank.
and to condense it so tightly that you almost had to be a gunslinger yourself as an editor and and pat this guy was an artist just a beautiful artist and i want you to just appreciate how well this movie is put together it doesn't look the best it was shot on 16 millimeter and uh, the american genre film archive has released it for the life of me i can't remember who put this out beforehand which is hysterical because this whole show should be about facts and educating you and the, the people that put this out before the American Genre Film Archive were the first people to do so since it's theatrical run, so I just suck. <laughs> I just suck. But if it makes any difference to you, the fact is null and void because you probably can't buy that copy at all anymore. I have the AGFA version. Not doing anything for the audience now. Yeah, sorry. Well, let's get back to the movie. We find out now that this massive TV studio is somehow, somewhere inside the house that we're shooting at, this quaint little country farmhouse kind of cabin in the Pennsylvania wilderness. We see now that Lacey has cameras everywhere. The house, the woods, the wilderness, e e everywhere. He's watching everything. He sees everything. He's having it all filmed for some reason or another. We know this man is making a movie, but what type of movie is Lacey actually making? The rest of the cast and crew are partying when Dom and Celeste return. They're barbecuing a big old pig. Celeste decides that, you know, she doesn't want to join in with the boogie. And Nikki immediately goes after her. See, he didn't know that she was a part of this production. So all of that stuff at the bar with the umbrella hat, he just, you know, was walking up to a chick that he wanted to hit on, didn't really care about the guy. So he didn't know Dom was essentially a part of this either. All of it's new to him. But that really raises some questions with Lacey. How does he know him? And Barney seemed to be very familiar with him too. We already know Lobo, who we're finally introduced to. We finally get to see this guy. Played by Charlie. Charles Hoyes. What's their involvement? Are they cast? Are they crew? When Nikki shows up at the house and he's fully introduced as a character outside of the bar sequence, Lacey and Barney are playing cards and the three of them act like they know each other incredibly well and they keep bringing up, you know, the hunt. The hunt is about to go on. To the extent that Lacey even says, look, your scene's in two weeks. Try not to come over here coked up and fuck this up and say something that nobody needs to hear. But all of this is just, I mentioned when we were talking about that segment, it just seems like loose dialogue. It doesn't really come to you whatsoever. And then as these layers slowly get to peel, we now have Nikki pretty much accosting Celeste. You know, I'm sorry, I didn't know that you were a part of this picture. You know, I just kind of want to be your friend. And Celeste says, I, I don't want to be your friend. And she storms off and she leaves. At this point where Dom decides that he's not going to hang out for the barbecue either. And eh, go figure. But boy, can Tom Savini play a creep. You just know something's not right, especially with his attitude. I mean, he's into this chick, and now that he knows that she's a part of this and that she's connected to Lacey somewhere or another, he's even into it more. And that itself is more deception. How does he know who Lacey is? What's his involvement? We just don't know. He just showed up. There's this really great American Gothic shot, like like literally the painting American Gothic of Joe Pilato and Susan Chappick sitting together, and, and it just... It goes from this very sterile, I've used that word a few times tonight, and I think it's really apt for what this movie is because a lot of it is just like scenes. You're just shown these interjected pieces of people, and you've got this replication of American Gothic, and then they immediately make love, and it's this really sensual, passionate scene, but the flutes show up. What does that mean? It means that we're being watched. Lacey's watching the entire thing. So Celeste is much more than a gaffer on this project. Why else would she have this love scene? Why else would she be being filmed? Dom, on the other hand, he just thinks he's getting it on. He just thinks he's made a connection with somebody. Now it's time for another coke-fueled scene. This time, Dom is actually hanging out with Lacey, 
Barney, and Lobo. They're discussing the film and the facts that it's only really missing a good chase scene. But here you get some philosophy to Dom as a person that, you know, he's not just a cameraman. This isn't just a job. He believes in art. He he believes that film is art. And there's a big difference. I mean, there are people that just do this for a job, and then there are people that think film is, is the greatest form of art on the planet, and they have respect for that, and they want to help produce some of the greatest art on the planet. And that's the type of guy Dom is. He really believes in the idea of film, and he discusses what he thinks is perfect for the movie. He's talking about what is necessary, what makes a good movie. And then you get something that... Early audiences, I'm sure audiences now would find very, very objectable. A step-by-step guide on how to do cocaine. Barney teaches Dom how to do coke for the very first time. And we're supposed to believe that Joe Pilato has never done coke before, but it's a really cool scene, and there's a lot of camaraderie, and there's a lot of reality to, to what's going on, whether or not it was real coke, whether or not it was real drugs. The direction, the pacing, the scene itself changes once they get high, and it becomes so chattery, it becomes so realistic that partially why I believe it <laughs> was actually real blow that was used. You kind of fall into place, and you almost slowly become to... Be, be, you almost become comfortable really for the first time in the movie you've not had any point of being comfortable you've been stressed out you don't trust anyone and it's non-stop deception uh, everywhere you go every corner you turn in this movie so far you don't know who to trust you don't know what's really going on there's so many layers and as it's progressing all you know is that each person seems to know something different from the other person but for the first time everyone is hanging out everyone seems to be uh, happy they're all they're fucking doing drugs together. I mean, that's usually a good sign when a bunch of people come together and do drugs. They're uh, willing to share things. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like hunter-gatherers, you know? I've got the coke. We're going to hang out. I'm going to do it with you. You wouldn't want to do coke with a guy that you didn't like. Perceptively. Why do I try to use words that I don't think are real? I hear it in my head like, oh, that might not be a real word, Hank. And then I just fucking say it anyhow. And here we are. I'm just making up words. But even before Dom gets the coke chatters, he is discussing his his idea of art and his idea of, you know, really this picture. He doesn't think it's a bad picture. It might need a couple things, specifically a chase scene. But it's the violence. What does it matter? You know, people don't care when the violence happens. They just care that it happens and they don't care that it happens. They just want something to be excited about. And that's something that I completely agree with. Something that itself, I think, is even in 1980 poking fun at where the genre of horror itself and it has, you know, now in 2021 ended up, but where it was going situationally then, which was to shit absolutely where it is now, according to me. But things are about to get a lot worse than a step-by-step guide onto how to do cocaine. Things are about to get deviant. Well, more deviant, because for the most part, we've just been discussing voyeurism, incredibly deviant forms of voyeurism. But it's going to get weirder. Dom is a really interesting guy, and what we're allowed to see of his character here is he, he really takes things seriously, but he's a worker. And, a lot, you know, it's something you can relate to, especially the deeper your interest is when it comes to film. Now, I have worked on sets before. I've been a part of filmmaking. I have worked with people that I, I don't know whatsoever and trying to form a form trying to form camaraderie is very very hard because you know you work you're, you're there specifically to work and when we're introduced to this scenario everyone is having fun everyone is getting fucked up together they're freely discussing things and that's not always how things go for the most part people show up to work and they work and that that can be said to be true in any situation people show up they work 
and they work. So we get something a little bit different here, you know, and I was discussing earlier this familial aspect that Ramiro was so fond of uh, in the 1970s and early 1980s. And this is kind of the, the, the concept of that. These people are coming together and they're getting high. They're forming realities, I guess. You know, it's not just people working. It's not just co-workers. What you're assuming at this point is that friendships are being formed and that these people are, are getting an, act, an actual camaraderie and that they're going to be happy with one another. Until it gets weirder. Lacey listens to everything Dom has to say while snorting massive lines. And you have to listen to some of the things that come out of Lacey's mouth here. Because these are incredibly telling things. Just going back to that table scene with Tom Savini when Nikki first shows up to the house. There is so much that exposes the actual brutal, cold, and sociopathic nature of what's going to happen in this film. And if you just listen carefully, it will all be exposed to you. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, oh. They talked about that. They just talked about it in front of him like he wasn't even going to pick up on it. But that's kind of the beautiful thing. You watch this movie the second time and you're like, God, this idiot. He should have known. But did you? Did you pick up on it? No. You didn't. Don't lie to me. You did not. It's such a surprise and it's so cleverly put together and it's so... I, I want to use the word accurately pieced together, but I know that doesn't really make sense. But, I mean, have you know knowing the behind the scenes when you know how movies are made when you know how things are pieced together and you see how easy it could be to deceive somebody and to do something like this and as i was referencing even with guys like david lynch giving multiple versions of scripts to people you can really see this coming together there is so much reality in this that it becomes more horrifying because of the reality that that is believable you know you could believe this actually happening and to me that makes the story twice as terrifying as you know Ghosts coming out of someone's ass, and that's a haunted doll. Woo! Eh. So after hearing all of this, Lacey wants to show Dom and everyone else a movie. It's a movie that he got from a friend, a movie that he specifically says is for a very unique audience and is going to blow your minds. And boy, is he right. It's not a movie, it's not a picture, it's a fucking snuff reel. It's a masked executioner murdering a woman. And the money shot here is the reactions. You get these close-up shots of the movie we're actually watching while they're watching this snuff film of Joe Pilato just disgusted and horrified while Lacey is watching everyone. Lobo is confused as to if this is actually a real movie, and it really seems like Barney's in on it, that he's getting off on this, and that possibly he's seen it before. This isn't unusual to him. It's trash. That's what Dom says. It's it's absolute trash. But could it be a fake? That's the question that Lacey raises. He wants to know if people would see this, if the public would see this. And Dom says directly back to him, you did. You paid for it. So yes, people would see this. And he's convinced it's real, but Lacey explains to him, this is a student film. I made it, and the guy that did the special effects passed away in a motorcycle accident. So that's why I've hired you. And... Dom is mad. He tells him, you know, well, if you had that guy, you wouldn't need me. You'd, you'd be making millions. You'd be fine. And is convinced something horrible is happening here. Now, what we're being shown on screen is no different from any of the other gore that's been presented to us in the movie. But we have to take the performance given to us from Dom, Joe Pilato, that this, this is something to be offended by. Everyone is shocked. Everyone but Barney and Lacey. The idea that you just watched a, a murder for, what, sexual gratification, for the idea of art, for the idea of film, that poses a very bizarre question and now lets us look deeper into what Lacey possibly may be doing here. 
why does he have such an interest or such fascination with the realism? What's what what is the point? Because if you don't know it's real, it's just an effect. If 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 Fulci was real, and you never knew it, what would be the fun? You'd never know it. So what's his whole gain here? What's he going with? We just don't know. We return to this very massive point. What is real? What is going on? What's reality? What movie's Lacey really shooting? Now the next scene may actually have my favorite dialogue in this entire movie. Lacey's watching the snuff film again. He's, you know, sitting by himself in the dark drinking. And Rita comes in for a drink herself. And she just needs to chatter. She just needs to talk. She feels like she's being watched. She hates being in front of the mirror. Something creeps her out every time she's in front of them where she just can't help but feel like somebody sees her. She's absolutely terrified that Barney's really going to kill her, that one of these days the razor blade's going to be real and he's going to slash her up. She's perceiving what's actually happening. Something absolutely insane's going on. Barney's behavior is beginning over the top more and more, which you can only assume is the heavy amount of cocaine everyone's snorting. The flute theme plays, and we know that Rita's being watched. We know that all of this is on tape. And here lies the dialogue. Lacey says very flat, like, fucking mono. Do you want to have sex? You know, nothing sensual, nothing provocative. Rita cackles and says, yeah, that would feel great right now. Wait, with you or in general? And God damn it, it is one of the most unintentionally hysterical scenes. Well, it very well may have been intentional for the situation just to show you how undesirable just the attitude of Lacey is. John Harrison isn't an unhandsome cat. He's a pretty okay-looking fella. But the guy who's playing Lacey Bickle is just absolutely disgusting. Last week, we were talking about the final interview by Fred Vogel, and I mentioned at one point the actor Granger Hines. I can see his face, and I just associate with him with that character that he plays in the final interview, and I almost hate him because of that. You really have something here with John Harrison, which is funny because it's somebody I have a great deal of admiration for. I, I, I'm very fond of this guy, and then you see him in this movie, and it's like, God damn it, John Harrison, I'd fucking cave your face in with a rock if I could, because you're a greasy son of a bitch. No. Lacey Bickle. It's Lacey Bickle. And for people, you know, that aren't uh, professional actors, you know, it's not like you have this long lingering career of Academy Award winners under John Harrison's name as an actor. He was inspired 100% by George Romero, John Amplist, Savini, everyone involved with Martin, and that that's what pushed this forward, all of these guys' performances. Everyone but, I think... The actors, so I think Barney, Susan Chapik, Joe Pilato, uh, almost everyone was, like, obviously Pat, and everyone was very, very close, and they all knew each other, and they had that extension of the familial unit that Ramiro talked about so fondly. We can't really tell if any of this damages his ego. Like, Lacey's just an incredibly cold guy. He just sits there with his drink, knowing he's being filmed, that all of this is going to be a part of the movie at some point, and I guess just comes down to figuring out what he's going to direct next, or however he's going to do it. The next day, Dom finds some Polaroids of the actress that was brought over for tryouts while searching for the prop razor blade in Barney's room. She's bound, and she's gagged. Barney surprises him, and we don't get to see the rest of the Polaroids. But Dom says he was sorry he missed her this time. And Barney replies, yeah, sorry you missed her the last time. What? 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 Why are things getting so goddamn devious? It's not even like 
regularity anymore. The people that he was just hanging out with the day prior to this have completely changed. Barney himself completely becomes more and more unbound and erratic as the story goes forward. But what do you mean, the last time? And the pictures aren't just like Betty Page tied up being spanked. It's a woman in absolute terror bound and gagged to a chair. Something's not right about this. Dom himself just asking was more or less a way to try and figure out, well, what, what is this? You guys just had her here the other night. It was a little wacky. But we return to the movie, uh, the movie being shot. We have a rehearsal scene, a, a very frightening sequence where Rita is being chased by Barney up the stairs with a straight razor, hence why they needed the straight razor. It's just general work. We're going over what needs to be done and the lighting and how it's going to be shot, and we get almost a bit of normality and regularity here. And then we cut to Dom and Celeste spending time together, and Dom is telling her I wants to make love by the ocean, and he wants to be happy, and I want to make unadulterated love to you. I just want to be with you and happy. And what do we get? We get that little flute theme. We know they're being watched. Something's wrong. Some of the things that she has said to Dom, some of the time that she has spent with him, may or may not have been caught on camera, and she is surprised. She hears, she knows what's happening. And possibly she doesn't want Lacey to know some of the emotion, some of the happiness that she has felt with Dom. She knows something. Her and Nikki both are very insidious characters. They know something more than we even know at this point. We are left in the same situation as Dom. Through this entire movie, they show us stuff. They show us these layers, and I'm pointing it out to you here and there. Hey, pay attention to this. But when you watch this film, you are doing it 100% from Dom's point of view, and you're fucking lost. You're just, you're just as confused as he is to the point that you could even start to consider the movie bad. And I really feel that this is the false judgment and wrong judgment of most critics that the movie is considered to be this pandering dialogue piece. And it, no, you get to the ending and then you have to rewatch the movie. This is something that takes more than one viewing. This is something that has intricacy that you see it and immediately you have to see it again because it allows you to understand all the things that you had missed. And not necessarily missed, but these things that hit you like bricks in the face at the end of the film. So all these beautiful, sensual things, these dreams, these things that Dom's really feeling from his heart, he's telling to Celeste, and all the while, Lacey's watching. Not just Lacey, he's in the studio at this point. We're back at the TV studio when it's cutting back and forth. After it's introduced the second time, whenever Lacey is behind the scenes and this flute music plays, it usually cuts back to these people watching in the studio, they're editing, they're directing, they're, they're taking the live footage and cutting it and putting it into the film as it's happening. It really is like live reality television 30 years before its time. Lacey is always watching. Tensions begin to flare and Barney is, is progressively getting worse and worse and worse. He breaks into the room and has an altercation with Celeste and it's something that really worries Dom. He's afraid he's going to attack her. Production is getting closer and closer to closing so all we can assume is that everyone's just very, very tired. The next day, Lacey wakes Dom up early and tells him to get dressed and to come outside as quickly as possible where he finds Nikki and Lobo waiting for him by the truck. It's a truck we've never seen before. 
we don't know really what's going on. And Lacey says, you know, I, I've got some shots that I need to get done. I want to do these for the ending credits because the whole movie is this horror picture and it's about possession. So the whole feeling of evil watching over you. Let's just get some nice sprawling shots, kind of just like the evil dead. But Nikki and Lobo know the location, so they're going to take you out. They've already scouted it. I need this done in the morning because of the light. It all makes sense. I mean, it's a pretty okay request for a director. It sucks, but hey, first thing in the morning, you get out there, you get some shots. It's going to equate beauty. Everybody knows morning light looks the best. And again, this is one of those things that you just got to pay attention to what is happening because when they all get into the trunk together, Lobo says, just wake me up when it's all over. And then Nikki leans out the window and he says to Lacey, hey, remember my left side. That's my best side. Make sure to get my left side. And Dom makes nothing of it, but neither do we, the audience. Hence why I just referenced why we are literally in the same position as Dom because all of this just comes off to you as loose dialogue. I swear to God, the first time you watch this movie, it's like, eh. Just a bunch of people talking and doing blow. Nothing really is going on here. Then you hit that last scene, and we're getting there. We are progressing. We're getting there. And the son of a bitch just, just pays off so beautifully. This would be a great play. This would be something uh, really fantastic with just a few sets for, for the stage, but like anybody goes and watches plays anymore. I brought that up last week, that, that the final interview, Fred Vogel's recent, most recent film, that would be one hell of a play. In fact, Fred himself would seize it as a play and would love to do it as a one-location play. But audiences just suck. People just don't want to go and do that sort of thing because they don't want to expose themselves to something. Oh, it's a play. I'm not going to go do something like that. But you'll watch an 11-part, 14-hour Netflix series on the creation of ass plugs. Ah, people baffle me. Completely off subject, though, aren't we? Very, very much so. We know something is not good. We, we just, that's all you know at this point in time. And even to further that is the point that Lacey continuously tells Dom, don't wake up, Celeste, don't worry about it. Just get up, just come on. The, the lesser that people know about this, the better. Once they are out deep in the woods, Savini shoots at Dom with a double-barrel shotgun, and Dom takes off into the wilderness. Oh, a chase scene. You had to say that the movie needed a chase scene, and now it's unfolding right in front of us. So this is even more layers to this situation. So that means Nikki and Lobo must know much more than Dom. It seems like everybody knows more than Dom and Rita. Barney's progressively becoming a coked-out psycho, and now Lobo and Nikki are doing the most dangerous game with Dom. They're out there hunting the guy. He falls down this gully, and he takes off into the woods, where it becomes a pretty terrific survival scene. You've got these hand camera sequences of him running POV shots, and it cuts back and forth to him dodging and getting away from absolutely everybody, because it's not just Nikki and it's not just Lobo. There are other gunmen standing out in the woods almost hurting him. Every time that he... they don't shoot at him, mind you. But when he runs out, when he tries to get away from certain situations, he's shot out and forced back into the woods. All the while, the little flute theme is playing because he's being watched. This was scripted. This was set up. Now, did Nikki actually try to kill him? Yeah, yeah, it kind of looks like that. Which, I guess, would have fucked up the movie a little bit, but we were graced with something a little bit more here. We, in the situation, being Lacey. Because he's getting so much more action than he thought. Why else is this being filmed? It's creeping upon us slowly. The 
cold and awful realization that this man is making much more than one movie. What we were shown and seen with that snuff sequence and his excitement is that the question I've been asking the entire time, is it real? And if it is, if you didn't know, would it make a difference? It's becoming so apparent. This man, he's not just making a snuff movie because a snuff film is something that's made for the gratification of either sex or violence or both of them. It's a movie made for an incredibly specific audience that's looking for something like that. So what if you happen to make a mainstream movie and you had these things featured inside of it and nobody knew about them? It would be the, the ultimate fuck you, it'd be the ultimate prank almost. I mean, nobody would know, and then you would just forever be known as the greatest effects director. I mean, uh, look at how look at how scary that idea is. Not just the director killing people, but you watching people. And you hear stories about insane directors, guys like William Friedkin, who fires a gun on the set of The Exorcist just to get effects from people. Guys like Cassavetes and Kubrick, who would just scream and berate and 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 make their actors and actresses feel like absolute fucking dog shit to get the point across. But then you've got somebody that's killing them. Then you've got somebody literally killing them. And other people know about it. I mean, we we know 100% that Nikki's been on this the entire time. Nikki's been bringing girls over. What's happening to these girls? Was the snuff video we watched really something that was made in college? Was this some student film, or is this an early practicing of getting the art of snuff down to a pat? Which brings a very interesting question forward. Is snuff art? I guess it would have to be. Anything that evokes emotion to a technical standpoint would be art. Now, we're not going to discuss here the actuality of snuff, because that's something that's highly debatable, but in the universe of the film that we are discussing, effects from 1979-1980, this is what he's doing. He's effectively making the first snuff film applicable for everyone, the whole world. You, your brother, your cousin, your sister, your grandma, everyone could see this movie. It could play on TV, because nobody knows that it's snuff. Now that is fucking horrifying. So it's very clear Nikki has been involved from the start. We don't know how much Celeste knows, but Lobo also is out hunting humans. Everyone seems to be onto something, but it's all to different extents. Herded through the woods and being caught by secret cameras, Dom struggles to get away from danger. He's wounded, his foot's all fucked up, he ripped his heel off. And here we see something heartbreaking. Here we see that Celeste knows a lot more than we thought. She's in the studio. She's standing right there. We cut to Lacey and his gang of producers in that big, beautiful TV studio under the house. And we had an inkling that something was up to no good when she confirmed at the beginning of the movie she knew where the cameras were. But maybe she's one of the only people that has the final script as well as Lacey. Maybe she knows how evil this whole product is going to end up being. I don't know. You don't know. It's shocking. It's, it's it's heartbreaking because you have this connection between Celeste and Dom and then you find her standing here. It's really like sleeping with the enemy. What the hell is the final act? I guess Celeste is starring in Lacey's movie after all. Deception. It's all deception. Dom is struggling through the woods, wounded and being herded by these gunmen, and he finally comes along a house. The cameras pick him up going inside, and that's about the last they see of him. It's one of the gunmen's cabin, and he shows up, ready for a drink and some random harmonica playing, because that's something this movie was missing. Harmonica tunes. Dom ends up caving this dude's head in with a fire poker in one of the most visceral scenes of the movie where you just see the action. You just see him doing it, and 
it, it's killer be killed. He goes out to shoot some nature footage and gets shot at by Nikki and has now been wildly running through the woods wounded. There's no, there's nothing short but survival on his mind at this point. This isn't a day's work. This isn't finishing the shoot. He has no idea what's going on and, and he has absolutely no idea that there are cameras everywhere watching this. It's like the Truman Show, but... Honestly, more depressing, because that movie was just capturing somebody's entire existence. This is capturing their fucking death. Or so we think. They could have killed him. I mean, I think Nikki was out there to do so. But everyone else at this point, they're hurting him. He's being brought to some location. He doesn't know it, and neither do we. So Dom caves this guy's head in with a fire poker and ends up acquiring a double-barrel shotgun with two shots. And he's on his way back to the filming location. They even say it in the movie, the cameraman watching him. He's on his way home. They're expecting this. This is part of the script. Dom went from a cameraman and effects artist to actually starring in Lacey's movie. Unbeknownst to him. We cut back to the movie here. Barney going after Rita on the stairs. The scene that we were just setting up for. But the razor is real. Barney slashes Rita as she screams for Lacey. And it's painful. She's just yelling for help. And Barney's psychotic. All of this was ab-libbed at this point. Bernard McKenna's just going absolutely crazy yelling just psychotic babble at her. Oh, I'm gonna cut you. Oh, I'm a bastard, huh? Just going bananas at her. This guy's a really talented cat. If you saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show from around 1974 to around 1985 in Pittsburgh, you would have seen Bernard McKenna playing Frankenfurter himself. In fact, there's a couple scenes in this film where he's wearing a Rocky Horror Picture Show t-shirt. And man, his stage presence is great. It's such an enjoyable thing watching him go crazy throughout the movie. And he's kind of this Bill Paxton-ish background character that just has some really crazy and wackadoo dialogue that when it hits you, it, it hits you. And it's, it's again, one of those kind of unique things where you're laughing, but you don't think you're supposed to be laughing. And I always love that. I love that feeling where it's like, am I allowed to do this? Should I be laughing? This doesn't seem like the movie I should laugh at. Rita runs up the stairs and is acting out the scene perfectly. Everything that we'd established, all the things that we had practiced beforehand when Dom was on set, and they were going over lighting, they were going over direction. The scene, though horrifically being real, Rita being in danger of murder, be, her, her life being extinguished, it's acting out perfectly every single thing we ran through the whole entire script. And what we were shown is that Barney will attack Rita with this straight razor and she'll run up the stairs. And at the top of the stairs, she's going to drop her flashlight and she's going to find a gun. She's going to turn around with that gun and she's going to shoot him in the head. Now we know something awful is happening. We know something very devious and evil is going on. Rita is being slashed to death with a real straight razor. This is all being captured on multiple cameras. This is all being captured from some strange sick enjoyment for some ultimate art piece that we have no idea the depth of everything is going absolutely perfectly and she gets to the top of the stairs she finds the gun barney's laughing at her he assumes that he's finally going to get to vanquish this person you've got to look at how sick that is this person that's already been shown to relish and and whatever weird behavior that Lacey is into. They have possibly killed many women beforehand. The snuff film we saw, he's one of the few people that stands with Lacey. Eh, it's fake, it's definitely fake. This guy's established. He's a part of this person's sick crew of depraved acts. The gun is actually loaded. 
everything has got to be for the movie, right? I mean, what a better way to actually get this scene. Actors are expendable. You can get a new actor. You can hire somebody else, especially if you're fucking killing them. Then you never have to even really worry about the competition. The gun is loaded. Bang. Goodbye. And that's the end of Barney. A bullet right into the head. And everything is caught on tape. So is everyone in on this but Dom? And of course Rita, since she got slashed the fuck up in this last sequence. Was this entire thing written for the degradation of two people? Of just the idea of being able to get the ultimate performance out of these two people? The true extent of terror? It's starting to look that way, isn't it? Deception. 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 Oh man, no one is safe. Lacey is pulling absolutely no stops. This movie has got to be made. This movie has got to be shocked. This movie has got to be absolutely everything you've never seen or felt in a movie before. It's got to have awe. And it's got to have the best performances. It's got to have the most realistic performances. He is striving for perfection. I mean, this is the, the most insane Cecil B. DeMille sort of thing in the world. He doesn't care about anybody. This has got to be the most realistic thing. This has got to be the most realistic art that it could ever be. Dom makes it back to the house where he finds Celeste holding Lacey at gunpoint, grilling him onto where he, Dom, is. And she shoots him. She shoots him twice and she shoots him dead. She turns and she sees Dom and she tells him that Lacey killed Rita and Barney. He killed them in cold blood and he killed them for the movie. Nikki and Lobo arrive at this point and Nikki is fuming. He is beyond mad. He wants Dom dead. He wants to get to the bottom of this. Dom and Celeste run into them and blam! Dom takes him out with a double barrel shotgun. One blast. Lobo and Nikki both dead. Good night. Irene. They run for the car and Celeste is mad. Celeste is just screaming at him trying to explain this wasn't in the script. You just killed them. You you just actually killed them. They're not this was not part of the script. You don't know what you're doing. You this is insane. You have to stop. They're pulling out, they're driving in the car. He's he's attempting to escape. He says to her, Of course, they would have killed me. They're trying to kill me. What the fuck is wrong with you? And he looks at her and says, What the hell are you talking about? And then the car explodes. That's the end. That's it. That's effects, 1980. No one knows what the script was, except Lacey. Whatever his master plan was, you think throughout the entirety of this is some situationally loose, poor writing and weird dialogue and it's just this weird goofy movie of these people having fun and they're all friends and they're all just hanging out and they're having a really good time the layers and the anticipation that is brought forth through the entirety of this film is is, is immaculate and borderline something as masterpiece full which i know isn't a fucking word this time as Ramiro's Martin, something that is so excellently and quality edited, something that is so beautifully paced that has such an ultimately insane, heartbreaking story. I don't know how you could look at this movie any other way that it is one of the most deceitful, brutal stories that you could find in a movie. I mean, this is evil. Lacey is, is absolutely evil. This character, this guy... He created this whole idea, this level of this movie. Everyone had absolutely different scripts. No one knew what they were shooting with until the very brutal end, and the entire point was to kill everyone for the realism behind it, was to kill everyone because you don't know what's real and what's not. So you don't have an effects budget, fuck it, just kill them. If something is so good and something looks so decadent and so beautiful, how would you know otherwise? 
And then if it was spun to you, just as films like Snuff by the Findlay were as real, you would go out of your way to see it and then be astonished by the after effect. You would, you would just let it relish over you how brutal the film was. And on Death by DVD, we do that all the time. We talk about how brutal films are and how wonderful the Fulci violence is and how immaculate the gore and realistic it looks when it's never realistic. It's always splatter. It's always gore. You've got somebody that's obsessed with making it look so realistic that he's going out of his way to kill these people that it has to be that violent because life is that violent. There's a lot of purposes, there's a lot of points that you could take in this direction of the movie. You could look at it as something like the pre-telling of violence and how people are going to look at movies and they're going to blame people for specific things. I know right now is the worst time possible to reference somebody like Marilyn Manson, but despite his awful being and the things that he has done... Columbine was not his fault, and he was heavily accused of something like that because of his music, because of the because of the people that committed that crime being interested in him. Something like this, uh, something like effects, I think predates that, and then itself I made the joke about Big Brother, you really have the idea of being constantly watched. In 1979 and 1980, it seemed laughable, it seemed like something the Russians would be doing to be filmed all the time, to be watched in every essence of your life, and then years later it becomes reality television being exposed in every moment that you have, being caught by somebody else for their entertainment purposes. That just seemed... Nobody would have thought that was a reality. That was Orwellian. I think a big point of this movie does play into something like 1984 and does have uh, an Orwellian feel to it, but there is something much more devious. There is something much more darker. Just the idea, the, the sick, the sick, sick idea of murdering these people and no one knowing. Because it's one thing to say, like faces of death, this is real violence. You're watching these atrocities committed, but using it all for the intent of a special effect, oh god, it's evil. That's so evil. I mean, come on, man. And isn't it great? Isn't that just, don't you want to like wallow in that? You get to the end of this movie and it's like, oh my god, they've been talking about this the whole time. When Nikki was introduced, I've been talking about that whole sequence where they're sitting at the table. They talk about the hunt. They talk about everything that is going to slowly unfold and happen. Everything was calculated. The script of this film itself was incredibly tight and calculated, to the extent that while you watch the movie and it slowly becomes exposed to you, the uh, depth, the layers of all of these things and how people are involved to so many different extents, you start to slowly realize, oh my god, this was just, this is immaculate, this is... It might be low budget, it might be cheap, it might not be the best looking thing you've ever seen, but it's one of the most cleverly written pieces of its genre and time, even t to now. T t to now. It really is mechanical, it's like the, the, the configuration from Hellraiser, it's this beautifully running on perfect precision machine, duped, deception, pure evil. Just conceptually, the entire thing is so tight. It, it's just so well-rounded. I love this movie. I love watching it. Every time that I'm able to to sit down and enjoy this, I, I have such a great time. And it really is better when you have seen it. It really has such a rewatchability that you see this film for the first time. Every time afterward, you start realizing more and more deception. You see that the layers of deception are so relevant and they're constant from that very first scene onward. The movie ends just as it began. The name of the film on a big marquee outside of some place like 42nd Street. The big city at night. The movie's being seen. The movie's sold. 
the villain wins. Lacey gets everything. He makes his masterpiece. He makes his film, and there is no punishment. This film has something different to offer than the likes of Last House on Dead End Street. You get that lackluster ending, that little bit of text saying that they were all found guilty and they got sent back to prison because they were making the snuff film. And in this situation, you have something so much more evil, so much darker, and I think the payoff is incredible. I'm not going to say that this is a better film because they're both completely on different levels, but... Yeah, effects is better with its payoff, certainly. And I think it really comes down to the point that Lacey gets away with everything. He wins, not just because of his money, but because he was a fucking good writer. (laughs) Really, I mean, (laughs) he's a great writer. That's what it all comes down to. It was successful. And if anything is the lesson, if you learned anything from this episode of Death by DVD about effects. Be a better writer. Learn how to write. Writing is the key to everything. Duped. The Snuff Movie. Written, directed, and produced by Lacey Bickle. We see these words at the very beginning of the film, and it's the very last thing we see. And I think it echoes its entirety. I think when you see that at the end of the film, it echoes the entire movie, and it's almost bitter, lonely. It's so disturbing because you have followed this character, Dom, the entire time. You've you've put your hope on him. You've humanized him. And then you see it's all just one cog in some master's wheel. It's a real kick in the dick, I gotta say. And every time I see it, at that very last scene, Joe Pilato turns and he looks at Susan Chappick and he says, the hell are you talking about? And she gives him this cheeky look and the car blows up. Man, it hurts. It's effective and it hurts and it gets to you. One of my favorite things about this movie, I think, is the charm that it has as a time capsule piece. You are allowed to enter this world of the late 1970s and the 1980s, and it's very believable. You feel like you're with them, and all the while you get to have this exposure of people like Tom Savini, Joe Pilato, John Harrison. You get to see these names that you're aware of, and almost in their environment, almost how they they would have been in that era, you get something that is very friendly and very unique. I think movies like this are very few and far in between. I think what really helps this movie is the familiarity that you have with all of these actors. You're able to see familiar faces in a completely different vicinity than you've ever seen them before. And for the most part, I mean, like John Harrison. Look, I've talked a lot about Joe Pilato and Tom Savini, but the character of Lacey is is just so cold, so awful. John is acting his ass off, and it's worth it. Not everything is polished, but... This is a piece to see. Not only an amazing piece of Pittsburgh film history, but a great piece of horror history and a great way to celebrate Joe Pilato. It's March, Joe Pilato's birthday month. So raise a glass to the sky for this guy. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode. Effects written and directed by Dusty Nelson based on the book by Bill Mooney. Check it out. Find it. And until next week, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Be pleasant. Have a good tomorrow. I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. On the next episode. Two FBI agents, Hank, the world's greatest... The Believer and I, Alexander Nash, the Skeptic, investigate the strange and unexplained.
while hidden forces work to impede their efforts. Hank and Nash investigate a series of murders where there appears to be no tangible method for the murderer's entrance and escape. Eugene Victor Toombs, a seemingly normal janitor, is suspected by Hank to be a mutant who kills his victims and extracts their livers in order to prolong his existence. Find out what happens on the next episode of Death Files. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Uh, people would pay to see something like that. Sure, people pay to see anything.